Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Welcome to another Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. Today I'm joined by Visa. Hi, Visa. Hey, Eyal. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you here. And without mm-hmm. further ado, uh, what is the subject that you've chosen for our conversation today? Right. So today I'm going to be talking about what I call the library ethos, which is a, a way of being and a way of of experiencing reality and interfacing with reality through through the lens of the idea of the library basically at every scale yeah that's lovely and there's so much to unpack <laughs> there exactly because yes. it's not the usual concept that we go around having in mind um, so mm-hmm. I know you already mentioned in the past and I'd like you to start the journey in your childhood if you'd like is the library mm-hmm. a place that you feel emotionally connected with since forever? Yeah, exactly. So even, even before um, my mom, so my mom was the person who brought me to the library, but even before that, um, I recall both of my parents reading. And neither of them are, you know, like very educated. Neither of them are like intellectuals, but they both just like reading. My father likes reading about history and my mom likes reading like old literature, you know, like uh, what, what did she read? She read like Great Expectations, Jane Eyre, that sort of thing. And so I have this mental image of my parents in bed, both of them with their bedside lamps on and both of them reading. And it's kind of a comforting image for me. Like I just think of my parents that way. And the thing is, um, I do have siblings and none of my siblings read very much. So I, I kind of seem to be the only one in my family, apart from my parents, who really picked up reading and, and kind of turbocharged that and went crazy with it. So even in my parents' home, there were... You know, we had like these bookshelves that were full of books. I'm not even sure where they got their books or when they went shopping or whatever. But like, uh, so even at home, there were always books to read. And when my mom brought me to the library, I was like, whoa, there's so many books and it's free. You can just, I would take my library card, my mom's library card, my brother's library card. I'll check out like 12 or 16 books at a time. And I remember um, my mom, after we would go to the library, we might go to eat somewhere and I would like maybe like Burger King or McDonald's or something. And I would be eating while reading a book. And then I'll be reading a book <laughs> on the bus on the way home. And I just kept reading. It just, you know, it just seems so exciting to me. Like all this knowledge that somebody's that, you know, every book is a gift from some author to the world. And so it's a gift to me and it's free. Right. And I was learning about, you know, ancient history, learning about Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, volcanoes, you know, um, there was this book encyclopedia set called Charlie Brown's encyclopedia, cyclopedia. I think my mom got it for me. Oh, my dad. I don't know. My mom's a big Charlie Brown fan. But anyway, that book had like stuff about space and, and the bones in the body and cells and, um, you know, like carnivorous plants. And I was just learning all this. Shit. I was like maybe five or something. And it was just <laughs> this, this whole world was amazing to me. And so I was always reading, always learning. And so when I went to school, school felt like a, like a betrayal almost. It felt like so it, in comparison to being a self-directed nerd reading whatever he wanted from the library enduring school felt like torture and I think you know for some time when I'm talking with people and I describe how painful school was for me they're like huh but it's not, it's not that big a deal I just sit in class and nothing happens and I, it took me a while to realize that it probably didn't bother them as much because they weren't obsessively thinking about the next book that they wanted to read but right. couldn't because of class Right, so it's like like it's the opportunity cost of, of school for me was much exactly. higher. Exactly, they it's, didn't it, know what uh, you know what they, <laughs> they didn't have a, a specific alternative in mind. Yeah, I'm I'm so I'm, first of all I'm just like you. So at five, I was a voracious reader of even newspapers, which is really yeah, weird. Like same. in Israel, you'd get all the terrible news, and I would just be there <laughs> um, humming as well as I was right. reading. I don't know if you were doing that, but always yeah. humming for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would get in very weird positions. I'd be like 
lying on the chair like this, upside down, and like lying on the floor, and it's just very, it's very embodied. It's interesting. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the I think there is nothing better to highlight the importance of libraries to me as well, because when I think about historical events, I can uh, easily forgive any sort of burnt temple like i know this might be offensive to people who are of the religion you know that gets mm, uh, yeah that gets that done but um the one thing that does annoy me very much that ever happened was the burning of the library of alexandria like that does not uh could not be forgiven you know just imagine all the all the amazing books and writings that went there uh never to be seen again or or be materialized again um yeah so i definitely agree with you there and what about the the part of the ethos like how does that mm -hmm. uh, come into mind is it also something that started in your youth or later on i think um so this took a while to piece together because i didn't really have a concept for what i was doing but so i was so the story to continue the story is like i was reading a lot yeah and so it felt like family to me, right? Like my books, I mean, I didn't, I never explicitly articulated that, but like books were my universe, literally. Like it's just the way, the way that I interface with the world. And I guess at some level, um, I knew that I wanted to be a part of that process. And I didn't explicitly think uh, I want to be an author. I think part of that is because I didn't directly have any exposure to anybody in my life who was an author. So it's like vaguely, you know, I might have read, I, I think I would have read books about how to become an author. So I knew like the words. I knew they would say, oh, you know, write a manuscript, a draft, find a publisher, find a editor, find a, you know, like an agent to ship your draft around to an editor. Like I, I could say those words, but because I didn't actually have any such experience around me in my life it just seemed kind of abstract and and like wasn't going to happen like I didn't want to become a, a magazine writer like I did remember uh, when I was about and this is a bit older I was about 17 I would skip school and I would go and hang out in the libraries to do my homework ostensibly but instead of doing my homework I would pick up a stack of magazines and I'll be like oh I'll start doing my homework once I've read a little bit and I just spend the whole day just reading magazines like this is like GQ Esquire you know all those <laughs> like you know I was, I was becoming an, a man right an adolescent boy and I wanted to learn more about like you know what what do men care about and stuff like that and and I enjoyed that as well I felt like that was um, my introduction to just adult reality like i remember in men's health i think there used to be this section by this guy called jimmy the bartender and he would just give advice like like people it's an advice column and people would be like um you know um my i'm divorced and how do i make contact with my um wife's my my new wife's um children like how do i be a good dad to them and he just write really thoughtful passionate advice you know he's like you can never replace the old dad but you can you know make space for them and it's just it's just so nourishing to read compared to going to class and sitting in lecture theaters like oh what's this nonsense and i i knew that i wanted to be a part of that process and, but again, I think, and by this time, about, so to go, scope, go back a bit, when I was about 10, 7, 8, 9-ish, um, I discovered the internet. And to me, the internet was like, holy shit, this is like, like the library, but I can directly interface with it. So with books, I don't know how I'm going to publish a book when I'm seven. But when I was 10, I'm like, oh, you can set up a website of your own and you can write pages in Notepad and then in HTML files and then upload that. And then you have a website and you can introduce people to your website. You can post links around. So for me, the internet was like, wow, it's a hypertext library that I can directly publish in. I don't need an editor. I don't need a publisher, agent, whatever. And so, yeah, I fell in love with the internet, which to me, I interpreted as this is a super library, right? Hyper library. And I made my own website. I had like links to my favorite game website pages and, you know, FAQs and jokes and images and stuff. And I had a guest book. And I just really loved that. And I think that became my, my, my new sort of frame of reference. Like, like I just love the internet so much. Um, I was discovering music around this time when I was about 17. I was playing, I was, wanted to form a band. And even then, like I, MySpace was a thing. And so 
I, I made a MySpace page for my band. Like we met uh, through friends of friends and there's like this Singaporean local music forum called soft.com.sg, which stands for Sound of Friends Together. It's very cheesy. But um, yeah, it was just, I, I developed a sense of, of community with the other musicians on that forum. And so it's just all of that was just the activity that really excited me. And, and me, I would like come back from school and I would rush to the computer and be like, what's the, what, what's the latest on soft.com? You know, what's the latest on this forum? Of what's has anyone signed my guest book? Like th- those are all the things that was was how I kind of um, punctuated my life. It's almost like there's there's this civilian life that I have to live because of my parents and society and whatever. And then my real life. So when I watched uh, the Matrix, I was like, ooh, like Neo. It's like I felt like Neo in a sense. You know, he's like he has this Mr. Anderson life, but his real self is Neo. Like, and I related to that. And um, yeah, so I just. I would spend a lot of time online on forums. You know, when Reddit came around, I would get on Reddit. When Quora came around, I'd get on Quora. I've just always been very actively participating in every online space that would have me, which to me just felt completely normal and obvious. And it took me a while to understand that, oh, actually most people on the internet are lurkers. They don't post anything. They just kind of use use it as like an entertainment scrolling interface. And for me, it's like, no, it's like I've always wanted to participate and and give back and, and kind of be like that and yeah so i kept blogging and when I, around like 2010 so um wait so i started blogging because uh like some of my classmates were also blogging so we were almost using blogs like a early proto facebook like we just talk about today at school this happened and then after school i went to my friend's house and we played video games and th- that's a blog post and we enjoyed you know like just commenting on each other's blog posts and that sort of thing and then one day i found a live journal community which was about Sing- singaporean live journalists and I was like, ooh, here's like a live journal system. It's like there are pages and you can post, a po- you can submit your post to the page. And I was like, ooh, let me, let me, sub- let's like a local live journal. Let me submit some of my local thoughts. And so I wrote like this kind of cute rant about how Singaporeans are so materialistic and can't we be more kind to each other? Can't we have more enjoy in our lives and be less, less money-minded and that sort of thing. And I got like, I think like 12 comments, which blew my mind. I was like, holy shit, 12 comments. <laughs> like I've made, I've made it in the world, you know, like You're 12 star. people. Like, exactly. And I'm like, I'm going to do more of that. And so I, d- I did do that. I started writing more and more like local political commentary, news commentary. There was one moment where um, there was something in local news that I was angry about. Because, I mean, no, initially I was just, I was just kind of annoyed because I thought they were presenting the statistics in the wrong way. You know, so it was like uh, for our school leaving examination. So like when you graduate from primary school mm-hmm. to go to secondary school, there's an examination you take. And they were saying, and so in Singapore, like um, 80 something like 80% of might be close to 86 some 84 to 86% of people live in public housing which is like uh, apartments oh, wow. so I'm in a public housing flat right now and I mean it's good it's like high quality apartments that's like subsidized by the government and then there's private housing which is like uh, you know like big bungalows like wealthy people live in private mm-hmm. housing that you know, takes up a lot of space and um, they were saying the news article was saying Oh, half, like almost half or around half of, uh, no, I think it's more than half. Yeah, a little, a little bit more than half of top scoring PSLE students come from public housing. I'm like, and they were framing it as like a feel good story. Like, oh, wow, you know, half of the, half of the top scorers are from, are not rich. And I'm like, but if you flip That's the table. That's not a good number. <laughs> yeah, it's like most, so it's like, eight, like something like 18% of people live in private housing, but they represent like 50 plus percent, exactly, 50-ish yeah. percent of Right, so I'm like, hey guys, like your statistics are kind of misleading because you're doing that. And then what they did was, and I, I think I kind of, in, like, attacked them a little bit. I was like, what are you doing? And, like the way you're presenting the stats is all wrong. You're misleading the public. You should, you know, tell you should if you flip it. And then they kind of like neutered my criticism in when they posted it. They were like, oh, you know, you looked at you can look at statistics this way, or you can also look at statistics that way. There are many ways of looking at statistics. That's how they frame my my thing. Which now, like as an adult, I'm like, oh, the press is you know in cahoots with the government to present the national. Okay, I get it. I, I get it right. now. But at the time, I was like, I was like, oh my god, how dare they twist my words, right? Like, and yeah. and I so I, I post like a very angry article about how um, the news media was misleading the public and that went like at it, for its time it went kind of viral it was like posted on multiple forums and everything and I was like oh the power <laughs> you know like I, I feel so like I'm correcting an injustice in 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 the country that's what I felt like at the time yeah so and, at the, I, and at, at that yeah yeah 
Yeah. So I want to ask you if, if the if the ethos when you speak about the library ethos, you you mean that uh, it's an ethos for for each and every one of us to to adopt on an individual level. Mm -hmm. It's like an ethos right. that you have um, that you are trying to to live by your life. Is, is that is the participation that you're talking about in all these right. uh, platforms? Yeah. So I would say that there's a spectrum right so not so obviously not everybody is going to become a historian or a journalist or a, you know an author uh I, I i think how i frame it so I, I i guess i think of it almost as like there might be successive successive layers of it and so some people will when they hear about this sort of thing what i expect and what i've seen happen is that it makes something click for them it's like they are already kind of like that but they don't quite know it yet or they haven't found the words to, to frame it in that way. Like they've already been reading a lot. They've already liked to write, but they've never kind of pieced it all together into a coherent way of seeing the world. And so when I do that for them, like it almost unlocks their potential and power because they're like, they've, they, it releases a lot of tension. They realize, oh, this is how I am. And there are other people like me and we should make friends and we should, you know, kind of um, respond to each other and share each other's stuff and all that. So for those people, so I'm mainly writing this for those people. I'm, I'm mainly articulating the, the ethos for those people. But it's like, you know, another way of thinking about it is like, imagine I'm an advocate for humor, right? It's like, you can be a stand-up comedian who's like a professional who can go on stage for three hours and make an entire paying audience laugh, which is excellent. But like, not everyone's going to be a professional comedian. But that doesn't mean you can't, you know, inject a little bit of humor into your like meetings or into your, your speeches, your best man speech or your eulogy or whatever. You know, humor is, is a precious asset, a precious kind of um, just energy to bring into all human interaction, right? Exactly. And like some people are just kind of not so funny, right? Some people just don't enjoy humor and some people love it. And, and I just, I guess, I just want people to consider like the degree to which, um, art and music and and poetry and literature has enriched their lives and it, you know if if you're not going to become a professional author or a professional you know any of those things that's fine you know not everyone needs to be everything but uh you know it's also a bit of a plea to like support your local writers support your local journalists support your local historians like we all benefit from that enterprise i think this is great quote from ethan hawk and he's talking about art so he's an actor and he was saying something like you know, most people don't really care that much about poetry. I don't know if he's saying poetry specifically, but I think he was saying about, I think he was talking about poetry. It's like day to day, you just live your life. You're not like hungry for poetry until, you know, someone you love passes away or you have a horrible breakup and then, you know, and, and like just some tragedy. And then you ask yourself, like, has anybody ever felt as horrible as I feel right now? Mm. And then you find some poetry that really speaks the beauty of that experience and you feel less alone. And so, in that moment, so like moment, like like you know, like nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine days out of ten thousand days of your life, you don't even think about it. But on that day where you know your your mother dies or something horrible happens, like you just need something to help you process. And then the artist who was there, who was working on his craft all along, has exactly the thing that you need to hear. And that's that's beautiful, and um, it should be appreciated. I do think it's underappreciated most of the time. It's like. It's kind of like insurance or, or just there are these things where if you don't need it every day, it's not so obvious and you don't think to pay yeah, like, for it or whatever. Like a like a tow truck, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. A poet is exactly a, is a tow truck. <laughs> ah, that's <operator>. true. <laughs> that's a that's that's poetic. Yeah, that's very true. I think so. Yeah. You don't normally think of tow trucks, but when you need one, you really need one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, that's fascinating. And it's it's always been a, a point of, of wonder for me why it's so hard to actually make that extra step and go and be a, a patron of the arts, you mm. know, which is something that is, I think coming back now, maybe there's a lot of, of talk about that with Web3, but, you know, up until a hundred years ago, uh, uh, an author like James Joyce or some author um, would be, would have a patron, somebody who appreciated the fact that there is an artist uh, doing the stuff that they're doing and giving them an allowance to to live to live off, uh, which is something that I think is is all but gone these days. As, especially when I think about like rich benefactors uh, being the patrons of of one specific thing. So now everything is decentralized, and that's good. I want to see it coming back. And why does this happen? Is something that I wondered. 
about a lot. And maybe it's because that the poet is using words and we all use words. So it's almost, you know, like we think, what's the big deal? Like I'm using words, the poet is using words or the writer uses words. I think that the best thing that could be done to have children appreciate and grow up to be adults that not only appreciate it on the moment where they encounter it, but really get an appreciation of even things that don't resonate with them emotionally right now, but they just see the beauty in it, is that you have to uh, at least let children try their hand at writing, see how non-trivial it is to be able to string words together in a way that actually creates this resonance in our soul that is emotion. And then they can start appreciating how intricate, how complex the art actually is. Because I think people are very easily, uh, they're astounded when they see Lionel Messi or some football star doing things which they know they absolutely can't do because we all play football you know we all played whatever sport it was when we were small so that's easy to appreciate and people are happily pouring money over this even if it's just you know giving the monthly bill to the cable companies but with writing because it's maybe more abstract because we all do it to a certain extent maybe people don't recognize that um these things are actually hard to make and it doesn't open their heart as much to toward the, the artist. Well, actually, so if you want to get into this, I can actually talk a lot about this because, you know, as, as, as someone who cares about this, I have also like studied this as well as I could. And I would say, you know, this is really funny um, YouTube video. I don't know if it's like a channel or something, but what they would do is they would go on Twitter and look for people who, um, insulted so this is in america and it's about like american football right so like they would wait for someone to tweet like oh how did that guy miss that kick right it's like a sort of like an open like a free kick i, I don't know the specifics of how an american football works but there's like a free kick of sorts and then the guy misses it and then and then like there are people who comment oh you know what a loser how did he fail that kick and then what they did is they went and asked those guys like would you like to come on our show and demonstrate for us how easy that kick is and they got like a dozen guys and all of them missed the kick as well perfect so it's kind of so, so yeah it's beautiful and funny and it's like you know, and some of them had a sense of humor about it They're like oh it's my bad day or whatever but like i mean the funny thing is um i think while people while lots of people do appreciate that like the top athletes are like you know beyond our our capabilities a lot of people also underestimate at the same time and i think if you if you try to study like okay where does the money come from right like where like you know who, who is paying messi salary right is the question right and i think it's really um the money there comes from like the 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 event like so the, the the like so sports is is a community you know it's like a simulation of war right sort of and it's it's all of that emotion emotional investment that yeah, people have absolutely. so so even even in sports i bet if we if we isolate sports so we don't even think don't even talk about poets right if you isolate sports um i know that for example in well, in Singapore, we are horrible to our sportsmen and to our <laughs> artists. But like, uh, you know, people like rowers, right? Like individual sports, they, they, they don't get appreciated as much as like the team sport stuff. Because with the team, pot, team sport stuff, you have people buying in based on their sense of allegiance to the team. So, you, you know, you might almost wonder is like, if you, could, if you could find a way to bring like team allegiance to to the arts me but yeah it's it's and you could argue that that's probably happening in the realm of like youtubers and podcasters right so if you go on patreon and you look for who are the who are the top 10 most patroned um artists it's most of them are like podcasters and youtubers and they kind of have a slightly political angle at least like they're they're commentary they are doing commentary on net and then you could be like oh you know those aren't even real artists like I, I, i'm i'm 50 50 right. about it i'm not gonna they're say just, that they're, they're not... just they're just playing on the on the whole like tribalism thing yeah. so they're they are like the the people who call to arms and and yeah. hold the banners up and yeah. Uh, yeah. doing the marching or giving the marching yeah. orders yeah so that's very lucrative that's generally always been very lucrative i think and like the 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 challenge for a lot of artists if you are like sophisticated enough to understand it is to then like, are you gonna sell a little bit of your soul to to you know exploit a little bit of that dynamic to serve your art? Can you do? Is that possible? Mm. You know, can you do that without 
without being corrupted by that process. Um, I think there's this book by Balzac, Honoré de Balzac, and it's called Lost Illusions. I read it when I was like 20. I think Taylor might have mentioned it in one of his books. And it's a, basically about this small-time poet from some, small, some, some part of France, like a village in France. And he wants to go to Paris, partially to impress like the local, like a lady from his local town. And then he goes, and, he's, and it's funny because at first it's like the local lady, she's like so beautiful and amazing. And then he goes to Paris and it's like, oh my God, all the other women are so much more beautiful than, you know, like initially he was like writing her love, love poets, love poems and stuff. And then he goes there and he's like, oh wow, there's like all this glamour and splendor and, and like Paris is exciting. And then he goes there and he's like, okay, I'm going to make it big as a poet in Paris. And then he goes to Paris and it's like, it turns out that there's this whole, and this is like, what, 1800s maybe? And there's like this whole existing ecosystem that's like what we might today describe as like crushing capitalists and stuff, right? Like, so it's like, mm. a, there's there's like this cabal of, of people who write reviews for plays and it turns out that their reviews are not honest at all it's like all corrupt it's like they they are you know doing fav- favors for the playwrights and they're all this is all this boot licking and sucking up and right. then there's this other small crew of poets who are like oh we don't care about all of that we only care about truth and beauty but like they are tiny and there's no N- nobody there's no gets reason. to hear them Nobody gets to hear them and they don't even try to reach out to the public. They're just sort of like, oh, we'll just make the best work and we'll and like we will be appreciated just because our work is so good. And they refuse to go out and engage with people. Which is like, and then yeah. there's just all of these details. And when I was reading that when I was 20, I was like, holy shit, this this dynamic has been playing out in human environments like for centuries. It's not it's not new, right? So we really have to deal and I mean, even with sports and stuff like if you go back to like the Colosseum and all that right like there were all these dynamics as well and it's just very deeply human um, challenges that we have to to navigate and I would say like how I would tie this back to the library ethos is that you know when you appreciate how a lot of these things a lot of these cycles have been playing out in history for centuries and centuries um, it makes us feel less alone you know it makes us feel less crazy like like you people some people say things like oh politics today is like the worst it's ever been. Actually, no. <laughs> you go and read like the civil. Like, you get it, right? It's just things. Things have been crazy forever. Absolutely. I mean, really, it's just, like you say. It's the only reason people do that is because they haven't picked an, a history book in a while. But you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, there there have been, I think, murders in Congress in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There have been all sorts of of crazy shit that was happening in the past that we're just not aware of. That seems. Um, it's actually it's, it seems so crazy to us today that we just assume that it never happened because that's crazy uh, and yeah just <laughs> pick any history yeah. book about the, yeah, even exactly. the, the the 19th century to find some, right. you know uh, assassinations yeah. in America were yeah. quite a common thing in the 19th yeah. and early 20th century of presidents so yeah right yeah it's it's wild and we do us I think we we sanitize history for the children probably like to teach it in schools like and, and you know some of it is outrageous and some of it is a lot of anger a lot of a lot of um uncl- the wounds are still open like you know if in like um, national conflicts in like in regions and stuff and so it's dif- it's almost difficult to get to the truth because the textbooks like kind of like downplay the emotional they, like mm-hmm. they don't want to I, I guess I can understand you, you don't want like a child to go to school and then read about like history and then be, and then go back home and like cry to their parents like oh my god yeah. like are we the oppressed or is you know it's all this crazy shit but then the result is that there's a, like an anesthetization that happens like everyone just feels disconnected from their past and disconnected from the world and then what do you do you just be a consumer basically right so it's it's tricky stuff we need and so part of what I would say is a library ethos is that we need sensitivity right we need to be able to like you can't you can't just uh i mean you can but like it's not a good idea to just be like oh well you know this conflict between these two countries is because of these two things and like it's not over yet and we should still be i mean if you go on youtube you'll see it in the comment section like in any take like you know ukraine or anywhere in the world but like cambodia and thailand their borders you know there's like the Vietnam and Cambodia, like everywhere, there's Korea and Japan, like, like pe- people are friendly on the surface, but if you go to, to like the YouTube channels, you see the comments, people are, there are also people who are very, very angry about things that happened two, three hundred years ago or older. And yeah, you know, like how do we get people to engage with the world in a way that is honest and truthful, but also kind of sensitive to all the 
the underlying trauma, right? It's really, tra- it's trauma, right? It, it, we are still recovering from like the traumas of World War II, World War One. You can say it's all, it's all downstream of that. And I, I guess if you really want to go all the way, it's like, oh, God, you know, oh, human yeah, history is the history I mean, of trauma. If, from... if you look at Israel, yeah, exactly. <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> there are some conflicts <laughs> that have started much long ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's like how much time do you have? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're gonna go all the way. I mean, look, yeah. just this. I have this ancient tell uh, near near my house. A tell is basically uh, a natural hill where people could mm-hmm. live on, and then through the generations, it's it's built up because it's just layers of layers of villages that are each time a village is being raised and burned. Right. And then the next village is built a little bit higher because it's up on top of the ruins of the next. So just where wow. I live is, is one with, I think, it's either 24 or 42 layers of just destruction and, and reconstruction, destruction and reconstruction. And uh, yeah. yeah, so it's been a while. Intense. <laughs> intense yeah yeah Yeah. i'm I'm really i'm really interested in in that you know and now you've picked my interest with my very selfish um wish to see my own country doing much better in terms of Mm. being able to reconcile two sides that have been warring intensely Mm. for for decades now um right yeah so i i'd like you to to please go on and maybe maybe we can figure out a way to really move this forward how do you deal with um explosive topics with uh yeah. with sensitivity yeah so so you know i i will acknowledge like there's there's some privilege in being in just being able to have these conversations without breaking down and screaming right like uh you know it's you have to have you some economic status right you have to have some all of those things that said i i do think that what the internet allows us to do that people some people i think a lot of people still haven't quite grasped this possibility because the the ugly side of things is so much louder right like so the, the latest thing that's just happening if have you seen that twitter spaces are now a thing so Twitter spaces yeah. are things that you can create and there's like a bunch of rooms that just the the titles of the rooms are very antagonistic. It's like it's like just racial stuff, ethnic stuff. It just it's it's practically designed to outrage people and you know get engagement and whatever. And that's going to be something that people will have to deal with and live with and it's going to be a mess. And and that's gonna that's also gonna occupy like the bulk of um, attention, right? So the you know the new the old news adage is if it bleeds it leads like anything that's violent or angry or whatever it just it's it seizes our amygdala right our fear and and anxiousness and whatever. But <laughs> it's a big but. Uh, I think what is possible and what is slowly emerging and it's not so exciting and, se- and sexy and dramatic, right? But like um we can make friends with people from around the world. And I do, and you know, we, us having this conversation, it's like one, it's like one tiny drop in a, in hopefully a bigger bucket where I think that as people increasingly have built relationships with other kind, friendly nerds from around the planet, that, that would form like a meshwork that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so naive as to say that this group of people will single-handedly save the world. You know, that's like, uh, the, the world's always going to be burning to some degree, but um. That you know, I, I read this very compelling argument in uh, this book called *The User Illusion* by Tor Noritrandus. He's like a Danish physicist, and he was just—he started out talking about information theory, and he ended up discussing like cascade preference cascades, and uh, he's talking about the Cold War and and nuclear disaster, and how there was a period of time where the world was truly worried that like tomorrow the world might end from nuclear disaster. Like it just seemed like a possibility. Like if you ask someone what the odds of that happening, they might, they might say like 10%, like there's a 10% chance that, you know, the Soviets will launch a nuke and then the Americans will launch a nuke back. And then mm-hmm. it's just going to be, everyone's going to die in nuclear wasteland, like five to 10% chance of that happening. You know, kids would have these in school, they have this duck and cover right. drills yeah. and stuff. And we stopped doing that. Even though nuclear bombs still exist, they haven't gone away. You know, they've reduced a little bit, but it's still enough to destroy the whole world. But nobody really worries about that anymore. And the, and the argument is that Tor made that I agree with is that basically as a, as a planet, as a species, we've been having all these conversations. You know, um, Sting from the police, the singer, he had a song called um, I Hope the Russians Love Their Children Too. 
right? Like, uh, that's what, it's like, it's like between me and you, you know, it's like, we, like, if they love their children the way we love our children, then they won't destroy the world, right? And it's yep. like that song exists and there are artists sharing and like, you know, all these cheesy things like, uh, you know, sports games, like they playing table tennis with each other and stuff, just little ways of demonstrating common humanity and, and just like, all of the conversation around that, like just the global consensus sort of became, okay, you know, the people across the border, they might seem insane to us, but like they are human too, right? And, and that just led to, okay, we're probably not going to blow up the world um, between these two state actors at least. I think there's still some concern that like some rogue terrorist type state might be like, maybe might have that chance. But like the, the worry that a global superpower would do something like that, uh, diminished from the sheer volume and of conversation and and just all the artists and intellectuals and everybody involved were all talking about it all the time back then like if you read a book from the 1970s like you will see some reference to the cold war for sure and some reference to a nuclear disaster and all those things and i feel that so we are now in the in the we, we might already be i think we basically already are in like so-called world war three which is cultural and mimetic and like so it's, it's like no boots on the ground it's just um people are jostling for control of, of culture, like global culture and values and, and perspectives and so on. And, um, you know, some people find this very depressing, but, you know, it's, it's, it's way better than World War I and Two, where, like, lives were being shredded and, by the millions, which is, like, inconceivable now. Um, yeah, I but think one, same- one, good, one good example for something that, you know, in real time I was telling myself, whoa, this is really interesting. What's going on here is Gangnam Style, right? right. Because yes, this, yes, yes. This crazy, this crazy Korean dude just out of nowhere uh, is suddenly somehow breaking not just one glass ceiling, but, you know, several, getting yeah. out Korean pop music to, all, to the yeah. whole world. I had no idea mm-hmm. what it was like. And everybody, so... In, in artistic terms, I think a lot of people would say, oh, this is the lowest common denominator. You know, it's like, it's it's just uh, trash. You know, it's it's so trash that anyone can find in it. And, but from another perspective, this is genius. This is, this is exactly what's good about it, that you now realize this thing has however many billions of, of watches on YouTube. And you absolutely understand now that take every any two factions or sides that are warring with each other you know that people in both sides like liked it and enjoyed it and yeah. it it creates um a common language you know very very much subconsciously like you don't yeah. know but we don't know it's not it's it's never going to be spoken about it's never going to be calculated how many lives just the fact that we both saw a phenomenon like Gangnam Style and we could all relate to that on some level. This, because like you say, this is, this is kind of creates this enmeshing effect of, of populations over silly things, admittedly silly right. things, but yeah. um, they're silly at the same time. It's still somehow very serious in the long run. I agree. Same for, so like Despacito hit a couple of years ago. Same yeah. thing, like most of the world doesn't know the language, but everyone knows the dance everyone knows the vibes right and i think now on tiktok for example the teenagers are really you know again like they might just be doing silly dances but like it's cross-cultural and they are copying each other's dance moves and it's just there's that international sense of feeling and again i don't think that's gonna eradicate centuries old uh you know just trauma and and uh, injustice or, or all of those things it's like we're not gonna get to that but like the fact that people know that there are people elsewhere in the world and they they have these things in common, I think it just invites a bit more humanity. And, you know, so, so progress is always slow and undramatic and, and bits and pieces. But I would, you know, I, I talk with my wife about this a lot. And like in the past 20 years, like in our lifetime, like it feels like globally, like um, women's, you know, just, just there, there are certain things about, the fundamental experiences of women that are being appreciated, even by like the very conservative, you know, like so in in, the, in American politics sense or whatever, right? Like a um, just the very conservative right stuff. Like they they argue about like the the, the politics of of abortion and and all those things. Like some people still feel very strongly about it both ways. But things like you know um, issues of consent that has changed dramatically. You know, in our lifetime, like when we were kids, it's like yeah. there, like there were rape jokes on TV, and it's like it's fine. You know, it's like if you if you watch. 
um, sitcoms from like 20 years ago. But like, I think, it's a, I mean, even a conservative person who's like very traditionalist, fundamentalist or whatever, like if you're going to have a daughter like this year versus 10 years ago versus 20 years ago, like it just feels like a better time. So it's more opportunity, more understanding. And of course, the work's not done. Like, like there's a lot, a lot more to do. And this is true for every domain of injustice, every domain of whatever. But um, I think we just need a lot more sp- sane conversation and people who are trying to to hold the center sort of which is like almost almost sounds uh i don't know it's 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 almost like sometimes i joke that we need like a radical centrism but like centrists are never radical because if if you're going to be radical it'd be like radically like yeah so the radical centrism is like you know like like well the the funny thing the funny thing is that if you're a centrist if you're a true centrist or to me if you just tell me like a rational person to me, that's that right. centrism is is being perfectly rational. Um, not to say yeah. that you're you're giving up on your emotions or anything like that. That's I think is a is a misunderstanding of of, ration, of rationality. Yeah. Um, but if you're rational, uh, what happens is that you are not uh, radical. You're a centrist. But in every um, kind of argument or exchange you might find with somebody who is radical, they're always going to take you. Uh, they're going. Yeah. They're always going to call you a radical, just because mm. um, you know you might be on their side from a lot of perspectives. But at the first sign of disagreement, because you're holding right. your ground, because you know this thing is rational and true. Um, so just saying the 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 neutral thing, uh, just gets them to think that you're on a, on on a different side than them. You know, so in that sense, yeah, centrists are always radical in one in one on one interaction. That's true. Yeah, and they're underrepresented, and uh, yeah, it's there's, there's there's like an optical illusion when it comes to to the media in general. And I, when I say media, I don't mean like journalism specifically, or like just in in you know even just um, if you run a business, for example, like a like a cafe or something like the most most reviews you're going to get are negative most of the time unless you like really specifically ask people to do leave good reviews and stuff but like yeah. you know like people who have a good experience they don't think about it they just move on whereas people who have a bad experience are like oh people must know how bad this was so it's like there's this just bad news is always kind of uh, overrepresented and that can have a real effect on your psyche if you're reading the news all the time and it just everything just looks bad like you you never see in the news today a guy had a decent day and it was nice and he spent it with his family yeah. or you know it's just like that, that, that's most people most in most of the world and i love so i love reading about um you know travelers there's this tv show called um somebody meet somebody feed phil i think he's, he's been to israel as well he's been to singapore he's been to israel he's been around and he's basically he, he just goes he was the guy who came up with the talk with the TV show uh, Everybody Loves Raymond and so this is like almost like his half retired project where he goes around the world and he just eats with friends and and they show him around and it's just they invite him to their homes and it's their families and you just really see like everyone everywhere in the world kind of wants they just want to live a decent life they want their children to be better off you know they want to be they want to they want to work and they want to have have like some downtime have some fun have some good food like it's not. It's really there's this great quote from um, an Iranian author. I think uh, I can never remember her name. Marj something Satrapi. I think I can't remember Marjorie something. She said, um, you know, the she's talking. So she's she's an Iranian and she's talking to Americans and she's saying that the difference between me and my government is bigger than the difference between me and you. The difference between you and your government is bigger than the difference between you and me. And our governments are very much the same. <laughs> you know, it's kind of uh-huh. like so we say she said we can understand each other perfectly as, uh-huh. as people, as long as we, as long as we are not like we don't get in get trapped in the in the sort of uh, the frames that are used in political conflicts. Like you can there's so much you can agree on for starters, right? Like you both enjoy these movies, you both love your kids, you both like dogs, you both don't like something. Like it's just it's all of this human experience that you have in common. And then it's just like because it's politically inconvenient a certain way for certain people in power. Like it just gets it people get swept up in that. I think you know, there was that old quote from um I think it's one of the the one of the from the like Nuremberg war trials, I think somebody saying something like uh, you know, it's it's the same everywhere in the world. You just tell the people that they are under attack from some foreign adversary, and then that if they don't support like uh, militant action, they are 
they are being defeatist or they are you know giving in to whatever yeah. and you can just beat everyone up into a, a fury and that that's like ah uh, it's it's been true of like almost every part of the world for all of human history and i guess the challenge is can we can we try again i don't think we can remove that impulse but can we sort of temper it at least with sane with a network mesh a mesh network of mm. sane minds around the planet like you know just i think i think it can happen i think we should try and you know it's 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 I think, my I think it's i think it's a work in progress that you know maybe yeah. we too are optimists but i do think i do think it's happening because something we we have to account for the re- reduction in violence in recent decades somehow and i think right. that's a that's a fair um that's a fair analysis of what's going on uh mm-hmm. increased connectivity equals um a reduction in in violence i think that's definitely true um so it, would it be fair to say if i more explicitly connect the library ethos with that whole idea of creating a global community is that if each of us adopted the mindset where it is valuable to document our lives and share it um this basically creates the the basis of it we don't know if it's Uh, valuable per se and and that's i think it connects with your point of making it available for anyone for free it's not about like monetary value but the value of it is that many lives of many regular people around the world are accessible through uh, the click of a button and then people can understand unequivocally that other people are a lot more like them than they thought basically Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yes. So in in that regard, I you know, it's unfashionable to to be like pro tech like Facebook and Instagram and all that. But I I think if you ask me honestly, like if I zoom out and see my historical view, I think those things are good for the species. Like it's good that people can publish information directly about their I mean, so you know, there's things like people saying, "Oh, you know, Instagram causes body image issues." But you know that was also true of of like magazines like a decade ago and Absolutely. with the magazines with the magazines you couldn't like fight back by sharing your own story whereas now that's possible and so that's that's you know I, I think that in the long run this will be especially in like in like the developing world like uh well there's also it's true that the developing world there's people who don't have media literacy yet and you know that allows like gen- genocidal fascist types to really abuse the 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 uh the tools of of disseminating information they can spread misinformation just as well but like i i honestly do believe that the way to fight disinformation is with better information right we need moms and dads and and uncles and aunties to show up and tell story and like just people need to show up like you can't just the problem if if there's someone posting bad speech and then you like introduce uh a sensor of some kind like that sensor will then end up being accountable in like not accountable in some ways and then they will abuse their power and it's like who watches the watchers and you know this so is the answer to who watches the watchers should be everybody right it should, it's a, it takes the whole village to to yeah. see what's going on right and and even then i know that you know not everyone is equally suited to these things and so we need community leaders to kind of encourage the community and like this goes this whole through from a small community all the way to the planet right we need we need all hands on deck basically Yeah, and I think also that without Facebook or Instagram, which is Facebook, um yeah, and all these platforms, Twitter, you know, there's first of all, I think some of them are better suited for an individual experience uh which can hedge against all the all the violence and stuff. So I can testify that Twitter, you know, actually it's quite easy not to not to go to these places where all the where all the shitty stuff is going on. Um of course in my trending uh suggestions for me as an Israeli there's always Nazis and 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 right. the con- and the conflict but if I if I stay out of it yeah. um yeah. I, I actually I actually set I set my location to be Aland Islands which is like some some obscure place in like Norway <laughs> or like this and there's like no there's nothing trending there so <laughs> there's these little things that you learn to do like you set your location somewhere weird oh, like you set your location you can set your location as like japan and then everything is just in japanese so you can't even read it so it's you know oh, so like these, these these little things that you can do to kind of manage your your information feeds right like so it, it is unfair that like 
trends just get thrown at you without your your say like you should be able to to define these things but yeah you know and like we should be increasingly having more conversations with kids and with just with the public about what it means to to receive information sorry i got excited yeah you're saying no yeah yeah well i i was gonna say that you know facebook and and these things that have definitely shown uh, their dark side and they have a dark side now we see an evolution towards web3 where these things might be even uh, less centralized the platform itself is going to be less centralized it remains to be seen what it grows into but there is always a subset of people who are truly unhappy with um with the divisiveness they find on these platforms and maybe we can create better things in in the future with those technologies which are just now starting to um to form so yeah i think the the web3 technologies are definitely going to show us that a lot of people are much kinder and are totally disillusioned with the platforms that we've now learned to hate like you say facebook and and twitter and so on i also think it was a net positive in the long run because you want that connectivity first you might there are always going to be people who are going to fear people who are not of the same color as them or not of the same opinion uh, but in the end it's that connectivity that you've been mentioning we would also not have the possibility to have a a gangnam style event in the future and even in web3 i can see that there is a lot of place for scams alongside um good things so obviously it's technology it's always going to be neutral but it does give the possibility of really good ideas spreading much faster and not just getting lost or staying obscure forever yeah that's that's really exciting you know i was uh so i was reading about leds just out of curiosity like i can't remember why but i was like just curious to understand leds and it turns out there was this guy his name was like losev ola something like l o s e v and he basically invented leds like 20 like a long time before leds became commonplace so he was he was around during einstein's time and he actually wrote a letter to einstein hoping to like you know like have a correspondence but einstein was so busy and he got so many letters he ignored it but um losev invented leds bef- like he could have kind of jump started that whole industry by several decades i think but like he just didn't have friends he didn't have connections and so he kind of and he died in obscurity like during the war and stuff and it's just it's so sad like it, humanity could have advanced a technology by a couple of decades if this guy had the right connections or the right you know like something like web3 i think where you can post something and if people have an incentive to kind of pass along good ideas like that would be really exciting like something like that. i so i hope that things like that can happen more and i mean i i was i have been trying to put forth a solution to that like what i call the losef problem right which is like how do we just find these really underconnected people who are disproportionately valuable and how do we share their gifts with everybody else i do think that you know if i have like a librarian in like a what what i call a librarian like in every major city in the world then anybody who wants to connect can know okay i need to find one of these people and then i talk to them and if the idea is good they'll share with everyone else and then it's like this mesh like i'm already doing that informally on twitter and so on and like yeah the 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 web3 dynamic i think i'm i'm not precisely sure how exactly it's going to play out but it it seems to be in that spirit as well like people can really pass stuff along which is great yeah absolutely absolutely i think um i was just talking to someone who is more uh, well versed in everything web3 than i am and he basically said that right now one of the most uh, needed jobs in web3 is people who are able to have a lot of conversations with other people to be exactly that like hubs of yeah. information um yeah and you know going back to the story of the library of alexandria you know how many amazing writings have just been there they had they were probably they had one or two copies there and that's it in that library when this was gone everything in it was gone forever uh, i often wonder how you know i ponder on the fact that we're so lucky to have i don't know plato's writing in circulation or any of these because initially they were so 
um, fragile. They were so vulnerable. It, it was right. literally a person writing on a piece of parchment or a clay right. tablet. And if that parchment, 10 minutes later, something happened to it, you know, he spilled his coffee yeah. or whatever yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on it. That's it. It was like, so yeah. we're so lucky to have uh, things. Whereas today you write a blog post, the worst thing that's going to happen is that, you know, your computer crashes before it's saved. And even that doesn't really happen anymore because it's automatically yeah. saved. And as soon as you're right. done, you just press the key and it's out there. Um, yeah. It's very likely not to be taken down anytime soon. Yeah. And even the story of like Aristotle in particular, I think is, is very moving to me because first of all, here's this so Plato and Socrates and Aristotle from the academy, they were doing their thing, which is already very precious that they did it. And then they, you know, like when, when their society declined, like their work spread like south to like Baghdad, right? And then there were like, there was a period of time where I think the medieval Christian um in, in, in that part of Europe, they were just very against these um, mm-hmm. like early early Greek uh, insights and philosophy because it conflicted with their teachings. But like, it's like they passed the torch down south, right, sort of. And then like in Baghdad, there was the Islamic golden age and there was, you know, just people inventing algebra and alchemy and all these things. And then they, eventually they, Baghdad was sacked by the Mongols but like they managed, some some people managed to keep those flames afloat and they passed it on to the Italian Renaissance. And it's just, it's like, it's, ah, I just imagine it. And it's like this, this people carrying the torch of the light of human consciousness and yeah. they're refusing to let it, let it uh, die out. Like they were like, and people gave their lives for this, you know, so that we can, we, their descendants and yeah, successors can continue to enjoy our predecessors work and so i i feel honestly like a spiritual connection with this but i really feel like this these are my people you know like uh mm-hmm. there's this great line where when pythagoras i think was it pythagoras either pythagoras or or who's the other guy i always confuse the two of them archimedes uh-huh. might be archimedes might be pythagoras one of the two of them was killed by a roman and the last thing he said was don't disturb my circles i can't remember which one of them it is I think it was Archimedes. Uh, Pythagoras no? is, is more Pythagoras? ancient, I believe. So. I don't think it's Pythagoras yeah, so prob- because he's ancient. Probably. Mm-hmm. Let me just Google this so that I get it right. Can, you can edit <laughs> it if you want. Uh, don't disturb my circles. It's uh, Archimedes, allegedly, yeah. in Syracuse. Yeah, so he said his last words before being killed by a Roman soldier was don't disturb my circles. You know, it's, it's just, and I just find it poetic. I mean, I don't even know if it's true, right? It could be, it could be a story, right? but it's a, it's a great, it's a great story. It's so, it's just this idea that there are people who care about knowledge so much that they're willing to die for it basically. And, and to, to share that knowledge with other humans, I, I just find that so meaningful. I think when I was a child to some degree, like some of the people around me and like my family, I mean, so my, my, thankfully, my parents also loved books, so they couldn't, but, you, you know, they, they still wanted me to be like, in their hearts, they wanted me to be like an engineer or like just make money, right? Like a doctor, doctor lawyer, or something. something that makes, right? The classic, classic um, parents who want their children to, to be economically uh, striving. But um, I would say Singap- like the Singaporean context that I was, that I grew up in, and this is changing now, like when I'm in my thirties, but like when I was young, it was very much a, you know, don't care about frivolous pursuits like uh, arts or, or, you know, even like when I was younger, like even computer science and stuff, it just seemed kind of frivolous. And they would say like, focus on what will make you money. And yeah, but now I, but, but yeah. Now it's, it's like, you're idiot. So, Why didn't you learn about computers when you were so Exactly. Because, yeah, because exactly. you wanted me to be a doctor. Exactly. That's so true. Yeah. That, so that changed dramatically during our lifetime. And, and now you'll see those same parents like trying to be like, how can I get my kids to learn to code? Like leave your kids alone. They'll figure it out. You know? yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, um, what was I saying? Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's so nice to have the impulses of your heart be like validated in these such long, grand, ancient, ways right so it's not just i have this weird compulsion and it's almost like like something wrong with me compared to like my friends who don't care about libraries and books whereas i see that you know like uh, carl sagan has this quote about how books are proof that humans can work magic because you open a book and you read a few squiggles and symbols on printed paper and suddenly you're in the mind of someone from thousands of years ago like wow that's that's literally magic and yeah you know i think that 
if the species can be wooed, right, with the magic of our our heritage and our inheritance, like I think that can that might persuade more and more people to step away from like this angry yelling and uh, yeah, you know, it's a more beautiful, more uh, poetic, conversational world. And that's what I want to see. And that's what I, yeah. that's what to me like the library talks about. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's wonderful for me to think because I think I think it's such an, an optimistic. Um, outlook and such a uh, major encouragement for people sometimes it's overwhelming you know i'm one podcaster out of two million or whatever anybody who has a blog is one blogger out of many millions and sometimes it's it's hard and you have to think about oh you know if i put my stuff out there is anybody even writing this is it reaching people it can be overwhelming and and I myself sometimes am thinking this about other people, but I like the fact that you're saying it's like, it, it all has a place there. It plays its part. Um, you know, the person who, who, who needs to get to a certain blog post gets there somehow. And it, even the practice of having a library ethos for yourself and participating right. in this global, uh, global, connectivity project almost as you're putting it yeah in other words um is is something that we should all strive for and i love it it's a it's a really beautiful message do you have any other ideas about how to um is it basically a, a gentle call to arms for people to to share more to uh, even even if it's something as small as as their likes and dislikes about things yeah yeah um i, I actually have, I have a bit more to say about um uh, you know mm -hmm. so even blogging and podcasting and all of these things um while there are millions of of creators right so there are billions of people you know and i i do think that we are in the we are still in the very very early days of what's happening like the revolution that's going on and you know if you and, and again like history is full of lessons if you read about like the early days of uh, electricity or steam power like it takes it takes decades for that stuff to to really spread into the culture like like you know even like commercial flight was available and it took decades for people to kind of adapt industries around to it and i would say that anybody who is blogging vlogging podcasting today like they might currently feel like they don't have much of an audience but like if you continue to persist with it, like, and if you can keep at it for like five years, 10 years, and, and not, not necessarily like every single day for 10 years, but I think like every every month even, right? If you, if you have that kind of consistent, persistent um, pursuit, I think there's something about the space, about the regularity of a thing that makes it more and more valuable as it goes on. And like, you know, so if you find a blog and someone has been blogging one blog post every month for 10 years, like that, like becomes very very valuable as as a record of sorts and it's one of the crazy things about the way human attention seems to work is that they will build 90 percent of their audience in like the final five percent of of the time that they're in you know so like even mm -hmm. on twitter like the first i think the first 10 years i was on twitter i had like a thousand ish followers and then after that it's like a new thousand followers every month almost it's, it's just it's it's very it's very counter to human intuition right. like it's the scale that we are operating on right and, and and this so this is one thing where if you read history you'll get the wrong idea because historically like nobody has ever had the opportunity to reach the entire planet like this is 10 20 years old at max and we haven't even the analogy i've used sometimes is that the internet is like is like the electric guitar before Jimi Hendrix showed up. And so like <laughs> the, the the when the electric guitar was invented, it was basically conceived of as it's like a guitar, but you can plug it in and it's louder. And you know, in some ways it's worse yeah. because like the sound audio quality is whatever. But like because people were con considering conceiving of it as it's like a guitar but louder, they didn't think of just messing with it in crazy ways. And and Jimi Hendrix came along and he's like, Oh, you can do wild crazy shit with it and it feels like social media is still people are still thinking about it as as in terms of legacy media in terms of tv and radio and, and all those things and the really amazing thing that you can do with social media is that you can really zoom deep into people's lives and talk to people for hours and hours and like that's the thing that we are only just beginning to, to appreciate and yeah so our thinking is very much informed by the past and there are all these new ways that we can open up that we haven't yet some people are already doing it so the future is already here it's unevenly distributed some people are already doing it but 
there is a lot of room, I think, for... And I think people are always hungry for authentic voices. People are always... like So even when there's like tons of blogs and YouTube channels and podcasts and whatever, like a lot of it will will come across as kind of kind of forced, kind of fake, kind of... And, and some of that is just, you know, beginner's anxiety or nervousness or trying to do what you think the algorithm wants or what you think the market wants. But what people really, really want, in my experience, is that they want someone who's telling the truth, someone who's just really speaking the truth of their experience and their feelings. And I think there's, that is always compelling to people and like so i i always encourage people to to try and share and it can be scary right it can be scary it can be hard it can be but it's it's worthwhile right like from my point of view it's like it's the only it's almost the only thing worth doing i, I, get, I get dramatic I, i'm you know i grew up <laughs> reading books feeling feeling like you know i remember being a teenager and i was feeling like suicidal because i felt like life was so full of bullshit and like jobs and and wearing you're gonna wear a tie and uh, like that's not how i wanted my life to be so i wanted to get rid of that life you know that was the feeling and yeah so i'm still very dramatic i'm still like you know like i i i want to try and find a way to make a living as a writer so i did spend a few years working a traditional marketing job and you know, like I, I had great colleagues, great boss, whatever. But the whole time I was always like, ah, I want something more to my life. You know, I want my life to be meaningful and to be like, just uh, to feel like it matters in, in ways that I think is important to me. So, I mean, to anybody listening, I would say you don't necessarily need to like, don't, don't feel like, don't, don't overfit the advice. You know, don't be like, oh, this guy sounds like he's happy and he is talking about libraries, so I should become a librarian. Like, no, not necessarily. You should figure out what it is that makes your heart a flame, you know? And like, maybe at first, because you have a job and you have bills and you have kids and whatever, you can't, you can't spend all your time doing that. But try and spend like half an hour a week on the thing that you love, right? And then try to expand that more and more slowly. And then that will try and invite other people to do it with you, try and join other people who are doing it. And then you can expand that more and more. And I think that ties back to, you know, Gangnam Style and, and just all the things that, that we want to see people really living their lives with joy. And I think joy is like the, the, the antidote to like just hate and anger and all those things. Yeah, that's so lovely. I love I love every bit of what you're saying and the and the optimistic tone and uh yeah, and this amazing call to action for people to to connect more and do more things out of out of joy and and enjoyment. Yeah, this this has been great, Visa. I I enjoyed this very much and this hour just flew by me. Um I'd like you to uh share with listeners uh some contact uh details or where to follow you and your ideas. Um, all right um yeah so you can just you can just google my my username which is so my name is visagan the username is v-i-s-a-k-a-n-v so if you search that you'll find my twitter you'll find my youtube channel so the the, the best places to to catch up with my stuff are my twitter and my youtube channel i also do i am working on a book i have i have two books so i have my first book is called friendly ambitious nerd you'll find it on my twitter and my website everywhere and my second book, which I'm going to be releasing like tomorrow or the day after, like very, very soon, it's called Introspect. So Friendly Ambitiousness is a lot of what I have described around the library ethos and connecting with people and, and trying to just be a nerd at scale and make friends and stuff. And the second book is called Introspect. And Introspect is more about, you know, sorting out your inner conflict and, and so that you can be a person of, of joy, right? Like, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on right now. That's amazing. So obviously I'll, I'll link to those um, in the show notes. And awesome. uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on again. And look forward to being in touch. Thank you for having me. See you around.